You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader from the News and Observer, hosting this week. And with me are Will Doran, Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, all of the NNO. We've got a busy week uh, at the national level in politics, but a somewhat quiet one uh, here at the legislature. Uh, We learned some new details about the process of confirming Governor Roy Cooper's uh, appointees to his cabinet. Uh, We saw some more bills filed, and uh, there's been some action in uh, within state government personnel. Uh, So we'll talk about all that, uh, but we'll start, and of course we'll have headliner of the week, but we'll uh, start with the confirmation process. Craig, uh, you wrote this week about a little bit about what the process is going to look like after the committee that's going to handle these uh, cabinet confirmations met. So uh, what did you learn there? Well, we learned the Senate has put together a plan to to go ahead with this confirmation process, confirming each of the... uh, governor's appointments to his uh, cabinet that will be ultimately 10 people and they said they've, they've come up with a schedule for the first eight people who've been who've been named and uh, basically each of those people will go to a will first go to a legislative a senate committee that pertains to the field they're in you know the, whether it's ag or environment or health and human services that sort of thing and they'll they'll uh, get they'll have a little chit chat in each of the committees and the committees will make a recommendation to the this new Senate nominations committee, which will ask you know, go through the same rigmarole and then make a recommendation to the to the full Senate. Basically they said there's th- there there are only three things that we're gonna look at here, which is is this person uh, capable of doing the job? Can they um uh are there any conflicts of interest and will they uh continue to uh um or will they be willing to uphold the law? So those those are the three uh, the, the three criteria. And the chairs of this committee uh, talked a little bit about um, what's ahead, right? So um, did it sound like the nominees are going to be likely to be confirmed? That was the message we got. Of course, the background to all this is the governor has objected to this process, which is something the legislature, <coughs> excuse me, just uh, adopted, you know, enacted in law last last month and um which was to give the senate the uh, the authority to advise and consent his appointments and cooper has sued uh, saying they don't have that uh, that ability uh so there's the little you know this standoff there but but what everybody's saying in public is we're going to work together uh bill rabin the uh one of the chairman of the committee said we're not gonna this is not a political showdown it's not gonna be a big piece of theater we're just going to talk uh, and see if they meet these criteria he said i expect the governor will appoint people that align with his point of view so um you know we'll see if if that if that is what pans out and as the governor said if he's going to participate if he's going to send his uh appointees in there to uh undergo these hearings and take questions uh, they're already on the job uh right yeah. so not uh, in so many words, but he said he, ha- he hasn't said that he won't either. He's What they're saying is this lawsuit uh, has not yet had a hearing in court. They'd like to get that process moving, bring the issue before a judge and maybe get some kind of ruling. Uh, but they're going to have to do that soon because this confirmation process that the Senate's laid out starts next Wednesday. 
So meanwhile, the governor says he's also talking with uh, the legislative leaders, hoping they can find some areas of agreement uh, that they could take to a judge and sort of hash out what needs to proceed legally or not. But, you know, it's possible that the governor could say, no, I'm, you know, until the judge tells me otherwise, I'm not going to let them come over. The Senate could do the same thing, saying until the judge rules otherwise, this is our process, and you have to meet it. And in fact, um, they've got they've got some pretty firm ground, which is the Constitution says the Senate shall advise and consent, blah blah blah. And it's the blah 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 area that gets a little uh, that gets a little murky. Cooper is saying that doesn't apply to his cabinet secretaries. I can't, I can't remember the exact wording, but he's saying that these what the statute says does not address his choices for cabinet. Okay. So, other than that, it's been a little bit of a quiet week at the legislature. What have you uh, guys been seeing in terms of bills filed and other action? Colin, uh, what have you been seeing down there? Yeah, there's been kind of a surprisingly low number of bills filed this week. um, And we haven't seen a single bill show up in committee yet. Uh, I think there's some committee meetings scheduled for next week. Uh, first one that's popped up is the Transportation Committee is going to have its first meeting and take up some bills. Uh, one interesting one that I'm uh, looking into a little bit more is this uh, thing that uh, Representative John Torbett has filed uh, regarding motorcycles. Uh, it looks like it bans the state from constructing or designing highways and road facilities in a way that uh, impedes access by motorcycles. He's a big uh, motorcycle enthusiast and is often filing legislation that sort of makes life easier for people who ride motorcycles. So it'll be interesting to see what the the actual impact of this. I wasn't aware there were uh, roads that were built in ways that motorcycles couldn't travel on them, but I guess we'll learn more about that next week. Um, But other than that, there really hasn't been uh, a whole lot coming down the pipeline. Uh, I guess the other thing this week was the House Bill 2 repeal bill that uh, some Senate Democrats filed, but does not look like it's going anywhere as of uh, today. It's been referred to the Rules Committee, which is often where uh, legislative leaders will send things that they don't intend to do anything with, and looks like the repeal bill may be headed for the same fate. And leadership uh, on the Republican side have basically said they don't think there's the votes for a straight repeal, right? A, yeah, there's um, the talk of just a, uh, some sort of compromise, maybe sometime this session. It doesn't sound like anything is imminent at this point. Uh, Democrats have been pretty firm that they're not going to support anything that's not a straight up repeal. Uh, so really, it's a matter of does a majority uh, enough of the Republican caucus at some point get behind something that in some way maybe softens House Bill 2, uh, but the odds of a, a full repeal this year seem pretty slim. In the past, there have been these really slow starts because of leadership fights or, you know, the leaders were saying, well, we have to appoint committees. In the past couple of years, they've gone to this new system where they have a a one-day planning session that was supposed to get rid of all that lull in the beginning uh, with the idea that they would, you know, have or be sworn in and have committees appointed. So when they came back, they could just start, you know, right away filing bills with committee meetings and, and getting a quick start. That certainly hasn't happened this session. Um, there have been some um, some caucus meetings, I know, on uh, – the Republican um, Senate side. But as far as any movement of bills, um, it's been remarkably slow and quiet. 
It's almost as if everybody's just playing worn out from December, where uh, they had two or th- what was it, three sessions and or four, uh, four no, sessions. No, it, was, it was three, I guess. Yeah. Three, Ken, then the fourth one earlier in the year. Right. But they, uh, you know, there was just a. It, it ended in uh, acrimony, a lot of you know battling over HB two that ended with no real resolution that anybody liked, and uh, there there is really kind of a palpable sense of. People just don't have the energy to go bursting out of the gates. Yeah, and I, I will note that the bill filing deadlines are not until, I think, March or, or early April. So to the extent that legislators have ideas in their head and they want to procrastinate, which if they're tired, they may want to, uh, you may see a slew of bills get filed then and then get acted on sometime in the, the spring. But uh, we might be in for some, some dull times here in the winter months as uh, things get going. Well, one thing we do expect to see by the end of the month is uh, a budget from Governor Cooper, and uh, then legislative leaders will uh, craft their own budgets. Uh, But, Will, uh, one thing that uh, Governor Cooper has talked about related to his budget is that uh, he's uh, certainly opposed to the use of more money on uh, vouchers, right? Yeah, and this is something that he kind of, uh, you know, telegraphed all throughout his campaign. Uh, you know, he made it pretty clear that he wasn't a big voucher fan. Um, but uh, now that the legislature's back, he was talking to a big group of education leaders and told them that uh, he thinks the state should take all the vo- voucher money and send it back into the public school system instead. Um, for people who aren't uh, familiar, vouchers are... Uh, state-funded scholarships, basically, that qualifying families can get to uh, leave the public school system and go to private schools. Um, And one of Cooper's big problems with it is um, what he says is a lack of accountability in the voucher program. Um, So I looked into that for uh, PolitiFact. Um, I guess on the money angle, it's kind of worth noting that this is really kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the, the public school system. Uh, voucher program, if the legislature follows its plan, it's going to be, uh, I, I believe it's $45 million this year and would be $55 million. Next year, the public school budget is close to $9 billion. So, um, so what did Cooper say about right, uh, how so these Cooper, things work? Cooper was saying that, um, that we really don't have any idea what these private schools that receive the vouchers are doing. Uh, we don't have any accountability, even though they are receiving tens of millions of dollars in state funding. You know, there's not really, you know, we don't know how they're performing. So I looked into that, um, and what we found was basically that there is some accountability. Um, for instance, they do have to give all of the voucher students uh, standardized tests, but they're not the same tests as the state mandates. So, you know, if, if legislators wanted to kind of compare the two systems, it would be kind of an apples to oranges comparison. Um, and there's also some some requirements in the law about, you know, financial reviews and whether or not individual schools have to, uh, you know, report their results like all public schools do. Um, and when it comes down to it, really, uh, you know, very, very few uh, voucher schools actually do, you know, meet those uh those requirements and are forced to undergo that accountability. One of the other issues, too, is that although the students take standard take tests, they don't have to report the results unless the schools have more than 25 voucher students. So um, when I looked into this late last year, there were only three schools with more than 25 students. Did you check to see if that's... If that, there are if there more, more this year. Um, it turned out uh, by the end of 
I'm not sure about uh, this current school year, but in 2015, uh, the 2015-16 school year, there were about 30 schools that met that um, out of more than 300, so a pretty small amount. They enrolled about 40% of the students. Um, and so, yeah, and that that's an excellent example of, uh, you know, an instance where there is, you know, some accountability, but not nearly as much as there is on public schools. Um, and uh, we, uh, so we gave Cooper's claim a half-true since he was saying that there's no accountability. And clearly there is some, but it, uh, it definitely is lacking in a lot of areas. And part of that is, uh, sounded like it was because the data is not out yet, right? Not because it will never be out, but because there's some data that we just haven't seen the first crop of right, data. Yeah, right, yeah. And well, yeah, and like Lynn said, you know, some of the data will only be public, you know, if schools reach a certain size or, you know, things like that. Um, there is also a legislative over- oversight committee uh, that's supposed to be looking into the data and, you know, giving recommendations on how to, you know, change the program if needed. Um, but yeah, uh, their their data is not going to be out, um, I believe, until this fall. That's what I heard from people. And, you know, if it, Lynn, if you've heard something else. No, I haven't. But I, when I was looking at sort of trying to look at how the students were doing on the standardized tests, it was really hard to tell because the tests are different. And you can't really say, well, if, you know, half the students perform at this level on the test, are they doing well? Are they not doing well? It's it, it's not entirely clear, even looking at what they have, right. um, how the students are doing. Right. And because they use a different test from the state, you can't tell, for instance, if the state if the students are necessarily reading at grade level or have the you know proper math skills that the state requires for the grade level they're they're in. You can tell, you know how they compare to other students in California or Idaho or New Jersey or wherever they also take these same types of tests. Uh, But it's hard to compare them to actually their peers here in uh, North Carolina public schools. And other states that have, um, that give students vouchers also sort of apply the ABCDF system to the private schools that accept vouchers along with um, public schools. And um, the private schools that accept vouchers are, you know, free of that, um, that kind of, that kind of grading. So um, yeah, it's just, there's a gap in information in what we know about how students are doing, uh, or how perform how they're performing at, at schools that accept vouchers. All right. Uh, well, we will take a quick break. And then we'll be right back. Among other things, we'll talk about uh, some longtime uh, education officials who are uh, leaving their jobs in state government. Uh, We'll be right back. Stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. We're back with Domecast. Uh, Lynn, you wrote today about uh, some officials 
from DPI who are stepping down, Department of Public Instruction. Um, what's going on? Well, some big retirements at uh, the State Education Department. Um, the deputy superintendent, somebody who was really kind of over the academic side of uh, state education, uh, announced she's retiring, as is the chief financial officer, the man who knew about the money and how the uh, local districts got the money and how many people are employed um, in the districts and how many people were paid uh, by the state in the districts is is also retiring. So um, some big moves and some big holes left in the department just as they are um, as a new uh, state superintendent is coming in, someone with uh, no experience in state government and uh, a little uh, experience at a local um, school board. So uh, we're going to be seeing some big changes. Also, the person who was in charge of hiring at the department, um, the head of human resources is taking another state job, going to the uh, state human resources office, uh, and the uh, board's lobbyist is leaving. So some big questions about who's going to be running things um, and who's going to be giving all the details as the legislature starts up, as um, they get deeper into uh, the budget and uh, arguments and making their case for for money, and as they wrangle and refine um, education policies that will be passed down to the local districts. And so this comes as the um, Board of Education and the new superintendent, Johnson, are uh, wrestling over the new law that the legislature passed that transferred some authority from Johnson, from the board uh, to Johnson. So how does that play into all this? Well, the way the law was written, um, Johnson would have filled, uh, had the authority to fill three of those uh, big jobs. Um, but because the law is essentially on hold in court, um, the State Board of Education is, is fighting it. Um, what I was told is that they're just going to go about uh, hiring just as they had in previous years. It's interesting that um, there wasn't a lot of turnover at this level Um there hasn't been for for years, for many years that I've been been covering state education. So it's going to be interesting to see how the board works with the new superintendent in picking some key people to step in into some big roles at the department. And you always get some turnover when you get a uh, new administrator uh, in charge, uh, new, newly elected administrator. Right. Craig, uh, you you covered uh, something related to the turnover from uh, Governor McCrory to Governor Cooper, which was that um, Cooper uh, dismissed a spokesman for a state agency under uh, McCrory, uh, and now he's uh, he's challenging that that firing. So what's happening? That's right. It's uh, not unusual, of course, with the change of governor to get uh, all this turmoil and turnover that's uh, been happening. And in fact, in this case, the uh, General Assembly um, had had given uh, the, the new governor, Roy Cooper, fewer options, uh, meaning there are, there are what they call exempt employees, employees who are exempt from personnel protections. Uh, Cooper had been given 1,200, 1,500, I guess it was. Cooper uh, only, that was slashed down to 425. But uh, one of the offices, the legislature also passed a bill saying you can't take any of those exempt positions 
and, and make them uh, non-exempt um, in the Office of uh, State Human Resources or the Budget Office. Uh, and so uh, regardless of that, uh, David Prickett, who was the Communications Director for the Office of State Human Resources was laid off. He's turned around, filed a uh, contested petition with the Administrative Office of the Courts uh, on two grounds. One saying he was fired simply because he was a Republican, and that is illegal. Uh, and and secondly, that uh, that that this his department had been declared hands off by the by the legislation. Um, haven't seen Cooper's official response to that yet, but. Uh, it kind of echoes a another case from uh, from the last change of administrations when McCrory came in and uh, the uh, director of state uh, alcohol law enforcement scrambled to find a safe position that was uh, not exempt from employee protections, uh, demoted himself to agent and uh, sort of burrowed uh, out of sight there. But that didn't stop uh, the McCrory administration from finding him, tracking him down and firing him. And uh, he also sued. And that case is still uh, going on. Yeah, that's a that's a phrase I'd only, I had only heard for the first time the last few weeks is this burrowing in, basically demoting yeah. yourself or getting yourself demoted yeah. in oh. order to stay on in a in a position that is protected instead from, of yeah. uh, political. Yeah. Um, and we saw that with um, a couple of people in, in DEQ, right? Uh, under uh, Yeah, that's right. It was the, uh, the, the head guy, Donald Vandervart, and his legal counsel, uh, whose name I'm forgetting right now. John Evans, yeah, and another, a deputy, yeah, Jeanine Kelvington, Janine Kelvington, that they were the top trio running the department. Now they just uh, found little homes of lesser significance and uh, hopes that, you know, hopefully they, uh, you know, the intention is to keep your job at much reduced pay, but still stay employed. And the thing is, the idea that you're fired just because you're a Republican when a Democratic administration comes in is not a newsflash. I mean, it's worked both ways forever that way that's the whole point basically i mean not always there are going to be people who uh the party affiliation doesn't come into it but generally speaking at the top a governor has the ability to to uh, replace people all right well after the week we've had uh with news coming by the hour and the minute and the second from dc uh we'd be remiss if we didn't at least uh touch on the trump administration um, so uh, one thing that was uh, sort of lost in all the Trump news uh, was that uh, the, there was a document that came out from the Trump transition team uh, that had some details on how uh, his proposed infrastructure uh, spending is going to work, and it included a couple of North Carolina projects. So, um, Colin, what did that sh- record show? Yeah, so that was something um, where our colleagues at some other McClatchy newspapers had got a hold of this sort of leaked document. Uh, evidently had been circulated by the transition team back in December, shortly before uh, Trump took office, uh, and had been developed by some sort of consulting firm, uh, sort of looking at sort of the initial draft of, of what his big infrastructure plan could look like. Obviously, Trump campaigned on, you know, fixing this nation's crumbling infrastructure while creating jobs and uh, generally improving things. Uh, but he didn't get it all that much specifics during the campaign. So this is sort of the first uh, effort at, at coming up with an actual list. And when we look at the 
list of 50 projects that were on there. There are two that are of note for us here in North Carolina. Most impactful is uh, Interstate 95. Um, the stretch of I-95 uh, that sort of cuts through the eastern half of the state um, has been one of the states, I think, more neglected uh, interstate highways in part because uh, North Carolinians may not use it as much. Simply uh, a lot of the traffic on it is you know, long distance truckers, travelers headed from you know, New York to Florida, that sort of thing. And so the highway is only four lanes wide for most of it. There's traffic jams. There's some issues with maintenance that, that happen. Uh, and so for really over a decade, uh, the Department of Transportation has looked at how do we find funding to, to do what we need to do in terms of widening and making improvements to the highway. A couple years ago, they uh, very seriously considered the ideas of tolling the road. That uh, created a pretty... Uh, big backlash from uh, businesses that, that make their money from um, I-95 hotels and truck stops and that sort of thing. So they kind of backed off that. Um, and the, the funding issue has sort of been in limbo for now. Uh, Trump listed on the, puts it on the list but doesn't offer a whole lot of specifics about uh, what really he's proposing. It's list talks about a couple billion dollars worth. Uh, he's also talked about public-private partnerships. So that's that's a big worry for the tolling, anti-tolling yeah, and what people. Is, what does public-private partnerships mean? Does that mean tolls? Uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it means different things in different types of infrastructure. But when you're talking about roads, really the only way to get a private company involved in financing a road project is for the company to be involved in a tolling standpoint. We see that here in North Carolina with the I-77 tolls uh, that ended up being a big issue in the governor's race. That's a situation where uh, NCDOT contracted with this uh, private company uh, that's building these extra lanes on I-77 that'll be toll lanes. Uh, People are upset about that. They're worried about how much power this company has over how this is going to go down in any future. Uh, widening efforts. So if you go for that route with I-95, you're, you're probably looking at a similar situation. So that's something the, the tolling folks are, anti-tolling folks are concerned about. Uh, DOT has already uh, talked about the possibility of express lanes, which would be, again, similar to that I-77 thing where the new lanes, you pay a toll, the old lanes, you can ride for free, but you might get stuck in traffic. Um, so that's something that may be considered for this. But it's really, really early in this whole process to tell, one, does this project even make the final cut for the Trump infrastructure? plan and to what exactly is he proposing. And the other project that's on this list um, is one that's a little further down the the proverbial pipeline, and it's an actual pipeline, uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is a natural gas thing. It's going to run from uh, West Virginia through Virginia, enter North Carolina right around uh, actually where 95 comes into North Carolina in, in Northampton County, and then goes down into Robeson County and the Pembroke area, uh, carrying natural gas for a couple of utility companies uh, here in North Carolina. Carolina and, and surrounding states. That is in the permitting process right now. Um, it's mostly being funded by a private utility. So it's kind of unclear what the federal government would have a role in at all other than, you know, I guess making the permitting go perhaps a little bit smoother. Of course, environmentalists have been uh, opposed to this, uh, both here in North Carolina and uh, some places in Virginia as well. So that's uh, something to watch for in the, the next few months, just how that goes down from a regulatory standpoint and whether uh, Trump puts his finger on the scale in any way to, to make this project uh, more feasible or easier to finance. Well, I think that does it for our discussion of topics here. We'll come right back with Headliner of the Week. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Head, 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 headliner of the Week. And we're back, and it is time for Headliner of the Week. 
where we talk about the person who has been uh, most important or interesting or influential in the week's news. Uh, let's start with Colin. Uh, who's your headliner of the week? All right, I'm going with uh, NC Representative Michael Speciali. He's a Republican from New Bern, and he made headlines this week uh, when he joined with a couple other uh, legislators who uh, had uh, made some social media comments uh, disparaging of the Women's March protest in, in Washington, D.C. and other places. But unlike uh, Insurance Commissioner Mike Causey and Senator Joyce Krawick the week before, uh, Speciali did not apologize for his remarks, which uh, called uh, the protest a joke and that it didn't represent any of the women he knew. He instead uh, doubled down after uh, we wrote about it on Monday with a uh, additional Facebook post uh, elaborating in, in great detail on his uh, thoughts about the, the Women's March and then criticizing us here at the NNO for considering it newsworthy enough to, to write a story Um so he, he went on to, to talk about, uh, I guess, the specific things. He, the march was a joke. He puts in all caps. He's very uh, much behind that statement he made initially. Hey, offended snowflakes. The march was not about women or women's rights. It was about pushing a liberal agenda. Pro-life women not allowed. And then he goes on to describe some things that I'm not going to go into detail on because they're words about it, but topless women, various other things that he says were, were taking place there, and then uh, says that uh, the NNO is truly rock-bottomed with papers like this and writers like the writer, writer of these articles, which is a reference to me. But we'll stick with Michael Speciali as a headliner of the week. I uh, don't want to disparage anyone who doesn't like me personally, because I stay unbiased. You got a little shout-out there in the week's news from uh, this headliner of the week candidate, Representative Michael Speciali. Uh, all right, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Well, mine is going to be much more straightforward. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, the new commander of the Highway Patrol, uh, <clears throat> Glenn uh, McNeil. He's the uh, Colonel McNeil now. He is uh, uh, Governor Cooper appointed him today. Uh, your your uh, the rise and fall through the ranks of the Highway Patrol has always been inter- intertwined with the state's politics. The governor has the authority traditionally to <clears throat> replace the top colonel and. Uh, uh, this is a guy who's been with the patrol since 1994, has risen through the ranks, and uh, he's, uh, I forget what number that is he is, but he's uh, you know, the latest on a long line. In fact, you have to hire, the, you have to, the, the commander has to come from within the ranks of the patrol. It's a state law. So every now and then you hear, well, why don't they go outside? Why don't they do a nationwide search? And that's just not the way it's set up here. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Colonel McNeil in the hat for headliner of the week, along with uh, Representative Speciali. Uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going for a bit of a curveball choice. I'm going for a Betsy DeVos, uh, somebody not currently in North Carolina that we know of, but someone who's very much on the mind of North Carolinians as people are flooding the phone lines um, in Washington, calling Richard Burr and Tom Tillis asking them to vote against DeVos. Uh, she's uh, one of the more um, divisive uh, choices for the Trump cabinet. He's nominated her as education secretary, and she had uh, kind of a, a, a bumpy uh, a confirmation hearing, and there are a couple of Republicans who have said they're uh, going to vote against her. Um uh, people around the country are hoping that uh, they can get more no votes, including people here in North Carolina who are now emailing us complaining that they can't get through to, to Burr or Tillis. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll pick uh, Betsy DeVos for the strong feeling she's igniting around the country. All right. And uh, although Betsy DeVos is from my native state of Michigan, I didn't realize until uh, just this week that uh, she 
uh, that her brother is, has a North Carolina connection too, which is Eric Prince of uh, formerly the founder of what was used to be called Blackwater, um, based in. Uh, yeah, later Z, and then they had another name. Um, but they were Academy at yeah, some point. Yeah, and, and they got sold off. Uh, I think he's no longer with them, but they, uh, they for a long time, and I think still uh, have some facility in, uh, is it Moyoc? Um, I may be mangling. Somewhere up in northeastern. Yeah. 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 So, um, all right. So Betsy DeVos in the hat. Uh, and uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? Um, well, my headliner of the week, as far as I know, does not have any Blackwater ties, um, but maybe re- listeners will correct me. Um, it is Deb Butler, a Wilmington attorney who is the newest member of the North Carolina House of Representatives. Um, she was chosen by the local Democratic Party to replace uh, Representative Susie Hamilton, who was chosen by Roy Cooper uh, to lead the uh, Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Um, and uh, Representative Butler is also uh, lesbian which makes her the second openly LGBT member of the General Assembly. Um, and uh, we already, you know, in this podcast spoke about, you know, potential HB2 repeal bills and, uh, you know, might, might turn out to be a, uh, a voice in those discussions whenever they do happen. Yeah, she was endorsed by uh, Equality and C to get that job. Uh, I think there's still a formality left. Uh, I think it's a formality anyway that, that the governor would have to actually appoint her. Uh, yeah, but she was recommended uh, just uh, by the Democrats down there in uh, uh, New Hanover County, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I, I don't think the governor really ever goes against the recommendations. So. He doesn't yeah. have a choice. He doesn't have a choice. Yeah. Okay, so it is a formality. Yeah. All right, so she will be Representative Butler, and uh, she is in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, we've got Michael Speci- Representative Speciali. We've got uh, Betsy DeVos. We've got Colonel McNeil, and we've got uh, new Representative Butler. Um, as much as uh, I, you know, would like to celebrate anybody who's, uh, you know, going after Colin Campbell uh, on social media, uh, you know, uh, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Betsy DeVos. She was uh, a big newsmaker this week and uh, had apparently had the phone lines burning up uh, down in, in, at the Capitol. Uh, so Betsy DeVos is our headliner of the week. Uh, thanks a lot for listening this week and catch us next time. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.